Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this is a big one. We're talking to another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, the wonderful Glenn Matlock. I would say the Sex Pistols, but that's really just a small... It's not small, and it's not insignificant. It's probably the most significant thing on his resume, but it's far from the only thing on his resume. In fact, we don't actually talk that much about the Pistols in here. We do, of course. You can't, can't get past that. But I didn't want to dwell on it because he's done so many other interesting things. Lately, he's been on tour with Blondie. In fact, if you didn't see, they tore up Coachella last weekend. And he was there playing along with Nile Rodgers. He talks a lot in here about Clem Burke. They're buddies. And so a lot of the things that Clem does, he brings Glenn along. Anyway, Glenn has had a steady solo career for oh, probably 30 years now. And uh, he's about to put out his latest solo album, Consequences Coming. Isn't that the greatest title of an album ever? Isn't that the greatest idea or theme about life in general these days? To believe that consequences are coming for the people who deserve them? That is speaking directly to my heart right now. Anyway, Consequences Coming. It's coming soon. It's coming next weekend on the 28th. And I want to rush this episode out a little bit sooner than we might have because he drops kind of a bomb in here. After the Sex Pistols, I think everyone knows he goes to the Rich Kids with Mid-Year. Well, the Rich Kids album, the one and only Ghosts of Princes in Towers from 1978, is being reissued on vinyl for Record Store Day. And I know a lot of you, especially vinyl collectors, love that stuff. I love Rich Kids. And uh, that album is great. So we talk about that, of course, too. But I thought you would want to know that about the album. So that's why we're running this episode now so that you can get prepared for Record Store Day. All right? Anyway, we get into pretty much everything else. Playing with Iggy, playing with Johnny Thunders, playing with The Faces, playing with Ian Hunter, and everything else. He's the man. Glenn is the man. And I think he's enjoying probably the most successful period of his career yet. Now, he lives in L.A. This is a little complicated. He lives in L.A., but when we talked, he couldn't remember for a second if he was in New York or L.A. Turns out he was in L.A. in a hotel. So, I'm confused. Are you back in New York or are you back in L.A.? Where do you live? Hey, do, you, do you know what? I'm confused. I live in London. <laughs> I'm over here touring with Blondie. We've been to Mexico, um, Colombia, um, Miami and somewhere else, and I'm back in LA because we've got more shows coming up next, not this weekend, coming the following weekend. We're doing Coachella. Oh, um, so I've, I've decided to stay here, and I'm also going to do a show at the Roxy at the end of April with my stuff. And Gilby Clark's going to play guitar and what? a couple of other people, so that should be fun. Um, but then the session came up over the weekend and me and Clem got flown to New York to um, do a session with Richard Lloyd from television and Ivan Julian for this, this TV program that some guy was um, born oh, on the Bowery and they're making a movie about him. So we recorded this hundred year old song for, for it, but did a punk rock version. It was kind of fun, but I only got back late last night. All the flights yeah. were, were late. And then I set my watch wrong. I was an hour out. In fact, I just went out of coffee around the corner, and I thought it was midday, and it said one on my phone, and some guy came past, and I said, what day is it? My time is it? And he looked at me like I was an idiot. 
<laughs> anyway, we got right here now. So there you go. No, that's great. Okay, so first and foremost, uh, it, it was interesting getting ready. I was getting ready. I knew I was talking to you today. So Ivan was on here. Well, Richard was too. That's a whole other story. He was on here a few years ago, and after about twenty minutes, he decided he didn't like me, and so he said, "You know what? I don't like you. I don't like your questions. I don't want to do this anymore." And so that was the end of Richard. But about a few months ago, Ivan was on here. And uh, he and I had a wonderful conversation. His new album hadn't come out yet, but we were talking about it. And so I saw him post on Facebook this morning a picture of all of you at a studio session. And I'm, I'm like, I'm supposed to talk to Glenn any, any, in just a few hours. Where is this guy? He's everywhere, you know? Well, so, I, I, I was, yeah, I was in the <laughs> cloud, not what sure it is, Land. You know, but I'm... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but it was it was fun doing all that, and then the other, then then yesterday because I was in New York, I did a bunch of press. I was up at Sirius, but I mean, I I don't know what your politics are. And I'm sort of talking from an Englishman's point of view, but I got an album coming out called Consequences Coming, yes, heading up town trying to get a cab to go to Sirius at Rockefeller Plaza or wherever it is by Radio City Musical. The same time. Is that Donald Trump's going downtown from Trump Tower? Yes. It was quite an, to be arraigned, it was quite an auspicious day, you know. Yes. And I, you know, it's taken a little while for me to get my record out because, you know, lockdown and all that, and things are only still getting back to to where they should have been, you know, if it weren't for lockdown. But I thought sure. I'd missed the ball timing wise, but maybe I haven't, you know. No. In fact, you and I are aligned politically, and even just seeing the name of your new album gives me some joy because oh, I think, okay, cool. absolutely. And, um, because I think everyone is sort of dealing with their own version of mental health issues right now, especially for these last few years. And when I think about my own, they're most of it is tied to the lack of consequences to horrible people who are doing horrible things in plain sight for all of us to see and nothing happens. And yeah. just knowing that you, I mean, I was thinking about that just yesterday. He's in, he's in uh, court finally, and you've got your new album coming out, Consequences Coming, which is inspired, I think, by the lot of by all the historical stuff happening right now. It is indeed, yes, and also, I mean, mainly it is kind of pitched at people like Boris Johnson and the whole Brexit debacle in England. Um, yeah, but. That, that that's not the be all and end all of it. I think it's kind of a symptom of a general malaise of this kind of crazy lurch to the right in the Western world. Um, this sort of crazy lurch to the right, and then people just trying to hoodwink. Mm -hmm. People were maybe a bit more harder thinking, mm -hmm. and it, it's a frustration all round. But yeah. I do begin to see. I think people are wising up to them. I do begin to see a very faint glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. And kind of that's what my record's about, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of the songs I wrote earlier on, before I saw that, you know, I'm a big fan of Pete Seeger, you know, that song, mm -hmm. um, Fire the Hammer. Mm -hmm. He's trying to hammer out a warning, you know. Not yeah. Some of in England did, and people around the world do as well, but mm -hmm. sometimes it falls on deaf ears, and that is a frustration, and it makes your blood boil. Yeah. So, yeah, I can see where you're coming on that. But I think we've moved on a little bit incrementally. I think one of the funniest things I did see this morning 
You know that guy, he's got a name, but I can't remember his name. The guy in the big kind of raccoon hat with a horn sticking out of yeah. it. <laughs> he was cycling down Fifth Avenue on some kind of bike with an extended high saddle. <laughs> with all red, white, and blue round, and he's got his arms in the air. And somebody's throwing a state, state skateboard across the, the floor, and his front wheel hits the thing, and he goes tumbling. And it, it was just a whole... I don't like seeing people get up. But, well, you know, I, I saw the exact same clip you're talking about and had the exact same reaction. Yes. Good man. Cool. Yes. Good. Yes. Uh, speaking of which, tell us about, I've only been able to hear the songs so far that have been released. Tell us about Head on a Stick. So many minds are on vacation I'll plead in ignorance in this place Shall got ourselves a situation Because whenever, I mean, when I listen to all three of the songs that I've heard, it just touches on the angry nerves that I have going on too. But tell us about that one. Well, I had on the stick was, well, when I was writing the album, you know, things were kind of um, beginning to firm up in my mind a little bit. And I'd recorded a lot of the album just before lockdown. Hadn't finished all the singing and the songs, you know, because you keep qualifying the lyrics. And then the lockdown stretched on a bit. And I wrote a couple more songs, went in and recorded them. And back then, in lockdown, nobody could do anything, but the whole bunch of musicians started doing stuff online. You know, I did a session for some band that reached out to a mate of mine um, who was the original guitarist in the police, actually. His name's Henry Padovani. He's in Corsica. Yep. Mm-hmm. This band had sent him something. Would he play on it? And he said, well, you need bass on it, too. And I'll ask my mate Glenn. This band had sent him something from Argentina, he sent it on to me from Corsica. I put some bass on at home, sent it back to them, to him in Corsica. They sent it back to them in Argentina. They loved it. Then spoke to their manager, and he was in Geneva, who kindly paid me quite well to do it. We never met, but it sounded great, right? And I thought, oh, here's a way of working here. And, and in lockdown, I was talking to Clan Burke, who was in LA, and he had uh-huh. access to a studio. And I said, well, I've got a couple of new songs. Would you put some drums down for us? So he chatted up his mate, and he went and put a couple of rhythm tracks down, and then as lockdown lifted, I went in and sort of recorded them properly to his proper drums, you know, Clown uh-huh. always does proper drums. And that was Head on a Stick, which was the first one on the album, and the last one on the album is called The Ship. No more obligation, no more trust to follow. 
Kind of sort of chops and tailed and qualified my thinking, but head on a stick. That's what I like to say with these. Yeah. Herbex, yeah. I think, is a, is a good word. You know, yes. Nut, nut case people who just bought, you know, they're all hucksters and they are. Trump, especially, you know. Yeah. And head on a stick, that's what I like to say. I think they should be brought to I agree. And I think they should be made an example of, and I think it's beginning to happen. And oh, how I will laugh. Yes. Same here. It's interesting. I keep thinking there was this clip yesterday of Lindsey Graham on Fox begging people for money to donate to Trump's support. First of all, supposedly the guy's a billionaire. I don't know why he needs anyone donating to him. And secondly, it just reminded me of that televangelism craze of the 90s, where, you know, every channel, there's there's hundreds of televangelists out there just scheming and conning everyone. And eventually it died out and was seen for what it was. But this con won't die out, I think, in America anyway, because one of the major networks is committed to just seeing it through and keeping the propaganda going no matter what, you know? So the people who might think otherwise, yeah. I agree, and how sad is that? But, you know, in England, you know, if you join the army or something like that, they say, are you Jewish? And you say, no. And they, are you Roman Catholic? You say, no. And are you Muslim? And they say, no. And then, then they fill in, oh, well, you must be C of E, then, which is Church of England, right? You know, by default kind of thing. Well, well I'm not particularly religious at all, apart from when the plane gets bumpy. But, <laughs> it, you know, one of the big things from my small religious upbringing at school is, you know, a rich man will never get through. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than that. You know, and they're all yeah. supposed to be but they, you know, heavily religious. Are they my my left foot? You know, it's, it's yeah. crazy. It is but, crazy. But let's kind of get as many people to wise up and see them for what they are is my kind of mission, really. That's it. But through rock and roll and through some good tunes, you know, I think That's the other thing about my album, although there is, you know, a, a message, not all of it, you know, I'm not tub thumping on all of it, but some of, of it I am. But there's some good tunes there and some great playing. I've got some fantastic musicians on it. I'll Absolutely. On a lot of it. Norman Watroy plays bass on a lot of the tracks. Clan some guys in England, Elex, and Yeah. I've even got a Japanese guy I co-wrote a song with called Something About the Weekend. And it's a guy called um, Otai Tomasu. Friday, that's a different bag. Hey. 
he's the guy who wrote the Kill Bill theme tune. He's like the Jeff Beckett. Oh, fan. yeah. Yeah, it's kind of cool, you know. So Wow. Wow. So, so on uh, the album, there is something for everybody. I've there really is. Song, even the doo-wop song, you know. So. <laughs> and one thing I was noticing, I was going back to uh, Good to Go, your last album, which sounded almost like alt country, you know, and I'm I'm guessing that's like the Slim Jim Phantom influence, maybe. But It's. I wondered when I was listening back to the last album. I was thinking, does Glenn feel as if he has a legacy to uh, respect or play along with, or does he feel free to do whatever he wants to do, including a sort of borderline rockabilly album that might well, seem out of character, but that's what he yeah, feels like yeah, doing. Yeah, I think what I feel free and what I feel beholden to is what side of bed I get out. In the morning, mm-hmm. so that last album came up, came about was because I had been doing, and I still do quite a lot of solo acoustic gigs. You know, the Bob Dylan and punk kind of thing, which I really enjoy doing, and it, it's great because you know you not I love playing with a band, but then every everybody in the band's got to know every bit of every song. Mm-hmm. You know, and if somebody in the audience shouts out for a song and they don't know it, you can't do it. But when they do when it's just me i can do it and even if it goes wrong i can turn it into a laugh but at least i'll try so there's an immediacy for it you know bands you have to do a jump sound check and make sure all the keyboard leads are plugged in and the guitarist needs his a battery or a power supply for his stomp box or whatever mm-hmm. it's the guitar you just take it out of the case make sure all the all the machine tuning pegs are in the kind of right order and yeah. off you go. It's kind of yeah. far more yeah. Anyway, I've been doing loads of them, and I wanted to kind of incorporate some, incorporate that somehow. I've been friends with Sam Jim Fanzon for a long time, and he's got a sort of kind of a slightly different style of drum, and he's only got half a drum kit. And I asked him to do it, knowing full well that he would lend a swing to the songs. And um, I said, would you be up for doing this? And he said, yes. Mm-hmm. And I said, any ideas for a guitarist? And he suggested El Slick. Now, I'd met Slick. A good few years before, we did a project together. Nothing really came of it with Clem, actually. But I didn't know Slim Jim Newell, mm. right? And it, everything just fell into place. And I thought, well, okay, I've got these songs. I'll make 
I, I recalled it in America. We recorded it upstate New York in a place called Rhinebeck with a studio that Earl suggested. And it was halfway between me and London and Slim Jim in LA. So <laughs> um, we made a, a rockabilly-ish kind yeah. of album, deliberately yeah. so. But I've done yeah. that now, and now I'm doing something else, you know. Yeah. What's the fate? Are you going to be able to tour this? I would love to see you live, Glenn, in Denver. No, um, I'd love to come to Denver and start yeah. the old Lava, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's outside, but um, <laughs> oh, do you know what's really funny with that? Huh. I stayed there. I don't know if you know London that well, but a, this is a I, few years back, back again now, but there's a place called Portobello Road, which is like yep. a market. Yep. And I was there. down there and went in a cafe, and this guy who was serving was looking at me funny. And I said, everything all right? And he said, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, can't remind me. And he said, we did our laundry together in a laundromat in Boulder, Colorado in like 1980. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I like things like that. It's cool, yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Everybody's got to be somewhere. Yeah. Yes. Um, now speaking of tours, I've only ever seen you live once and it was on one of the sex pistols reunion tours. I think probably the 2003 one, it was at the Warfield in San Francisco. Um, uh, Reverend Horton heat was on first and then the dropkick Murphy's and then you guys. And I, <laughs> John has, for whatever reason, uh, adopted politics that are the opposite of ours do you foresee any i know you get asked sex pistol stuff all the time and i don't want to dwell on it do you foresee that ever happening again well there's that great james bond title never say never again yeah. okay there's that but there's also a good expression don't hold your breath too long <laughs> you might suffocate and i can never yeah. see me standing on stage with somebody wearing a maga hat you know no way no way Yep, I wondered. Yeah. Now, speaking of tours, you just completed a tour with uh, doing Iggy Pop's stuff through yeah. the UK. Kevin Armstrong was on that. He's been on the show a couple of times. I love him. Um, yeah, tell me about that tour. tour. What was that all about? Because it didn't well, include Iggy. I, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to work it out, really, because what happened was that, that Tony Sowers was supposed to do it, and it was all uh -huh. for his benefit, really. And something happened, and he couldn't make it. I don't quite know why. I kind of particularly want to go into it, but Clem was doing it, and he was staying. He stays with me in London sometimes, and he was staying. and And he said, "There's, there's stuff." So would I do it? So with about a week's notice, I, I did it. So I did that. We did thirteen gig. No, we did eleven gig in thirteen days. One of the days off, I did a load of press, and another day off, I ended up going to play bass this or not for a TV special for Susan right right for who so that, Susan Quattro oh you did oh she's been on here too she's right. wonderful too Susie Quattro yeah yeah she's lovely yeah yeah so she was doing a, a duet song she had a big hit with a song called Stumbling In and she wasn't going right. to play bass on that so I made bass on that and I thought it was going to be the guy from Smokey doing it and I went down it was at the 100 Club in the afternoon they filmed it and I went down there and boy George's on I said what are you doing there and he said I'm singing this song with Susie so <laughs> it was kind of funny life's been a bit weird lately and then the next <laughs> day I got in a plane come on to London 
Uh, wow. Is that from Natalia apart from rocking political evangelists trying to get their money, your money out of you? So, um, <laughs> yeah, might as well get on a plane. Might as well go to a show. So I had a question. I mean, I'm curious about how. Yeah, but, but talking of show, just going back to your sorry, just going back to your earlier question. Yeah, I'm going to get the Blondie stuff over and done with. I've got a show in at the Roxy here in LA at the end of April, and then I'm going back. I've got shows in England with my stuff with my band over there before I pick up with Blondie again in June, and then from the rest of the summer onwards, hopefully I'm going to be out and about playing with my guys. So wow. yeah. You know, obviously, that's my first love is the songs that I've written. Of course, of and course. Them across. But I love playing with Blondie as well. You know, yeah, everything you do with different people and doing this thing, I did it a weekend with Richard Lloyd and Ivan and Clem. You learn something from, hopefully. You know, it's not necessarily an immediately tangible thing, but it's all these different things seeping under your skin by osmosis, and that's mm-hmm. another bit of life to draw on when you do something of your own back. So yeah. we're all invaluable in some way, even if it's a bad thing. But luckily, most of the things are quite positive. So, and yeah. you've been at this for almost 50 years. And in that time, you've acquired not just skills like you're talking about, but also a lot of friends and a lot of buddies. And I'm guessing when a, one or two of them call you and say, do you want to go on tour? Do you fancy a tour? And you're like, well, yeah, I like Clem Burke. I'll go on tour with Clem. Why not? You know? Exactly. And that's what happened with the Blondie thing. You know, it didn't work out with Lee, the bass player, for some reason. Um, again, I don't really know, but I'm not going to go into that. I like Lee. He's a good bass player. He's a good guy. Uh-huh. Um, but again, they were stuck this kind of time last year. And Clem called me up and said, what do I do? And <laughs> bit of a no-brainer, really. You know, and so, and here I am sitting in West Hollywood at quite a nice hotel courtesy of Blondie chatting to you so you know life ain't too bad but it's a two way street you know yeah. I I can then call up on people like Clem you know come, will come and play and stuff or Earl or whoever yeah and I think you know one, one thing the musicians most in our our kind of field anyway nobody's really a breadhead about anything there's an old fashioned expression but you know, somebody's got an idea to do something, most of us will give it a go, you mm-hmm. know. And for all the records that come out, there's probably 10 times as many tapes sitting in drawers where <laughs> people have had a go at doing something, and it, for whatever reason, don't mean it was not any good. I mean, it could have been good, but it just don't see the light of day. Yeah. But they're yeah. all experiences to draw from, and it all adds up to the music that you're doing, you know. Yeah, Okay. So going back to, I, I had one more question about the Iggy thing. Um, like, is that, how is is that being marketed as like an all-star team or all-star band performing the songs of Iggy pop? How do you go about, I mean, cause if that's the case, anyone could go out and just say, I'm going to play a bunch of Madonna songs, even though she's alive and could do it herself, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. But people, people do do that all the time. We think, you know, it's a band in England. It's a promoter guy who books some shows for me sometimes. But he's actually in not Credence Clearwater Revival. It's a Credence Revival, and it's not one of them in it. And I think that's kind of a bit. It's just the way of the world. People, you know, might have limited yeah. money these days. They want to go out. They want to go and see somebody they know. 
they're, they're going to um, recognize the songs and uh-huh. kind of contribute. So it's the way it is. And in England, there's so many covers bands yeah. um, doing better than people like me. I mean, in a way, it's annoying <laughs> because it makes it harder for people trying to write new songs and get that across. You used to be able to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. It's harder to do that these days. I think people's attention spans are a bit less than what they were. But anyway, I play on regardless. I got yeah. asked to do that thing. It's not such a terrible thing that a whole bunch of people have played with Iggy. Yeah. Play well, fun because they dig them, you know. Yeah, of I mean, course, if, I love if, if I If I was Iggy Pop, I don't know what he thinks about it. I don't even know if he does think about it. But if he's got more blokes from Blondie, who he actually employed himself as a good drummer and a bloke from the Sex Pistols and a bloke who played guitar with both Iggy and Bowie going out playing his songs. I think, I think, well, well, there you go. You know, at least they're not going to murder the song. (laughs) Speaking of murdering songs, so you play on the Soldier album and I think that's one of the, one of the, if not the first, at least one of the earlier um, sort of sessions that you get brought in on. Do you remember how that took place and what was the state of Iggy in 1979 when you're recording that album? Well, I think, I mean, one of the few things that people ask me is, you know, what was it like work with Iggy Pop thinking he's a wild and crazy guy, which uh-huh. he can be when he's on stage, but he's a very erudite, intelligent chap, James Osterberg. And then he'd been touring for a long time. And he had his act together, and you know, it, it was probably the most organized professional shows I've ever done. Wow, at that, at that stage, and you know, he's in a relatively good place. He, he'd finished his, re- his relationship with um Bowie, yeah, finished not personal relationship, but right. recording relationship at that stage. And he'd had a go at doing something in the, the um Kill City album with um. Mm-hmm. James, James Williams, and, and then he made the, the the New Values album, which is pretty good. And I actually got pulled in to play bass on the tour for that because the guy who played bass on the album, Jackie Clark, was going to play second guitar on the on the tour, which he did do. And so we done that. And I think the deal he had, he had to keep showing that records. And in the middle of that tour, or at the end of the European tour, before we came to America, um, he had to cut an album. And that was the Soldier <laughs> album. And he, you know, he was churning out albums mm-hmm. and he was looking for ideas. And I think that was one of the reasons he asked me to do it. So I've got like one whole song on it and three co-writes. But Which one's your whole song? Album. Well, I've got Ambition. That's it, good. yeah.
Ambition and then there's uh, Take Care of Me, I Need More, and Mr. Dynamite, I think the other one is. Yep. But he's got some great songs that he wrote, and it, knocking them down in the set is good. <laughs> Loco Mosquito is fantastic. The words are great. Mm-hmm. You know, they, that's nothing like the stages. It's something else, but it was cool. No, it's but it's one of his stronger solo albums for sure. What yeah. about Johnny Thunders then? He had to have been, that had to have been tough. Aren't you on the Kesara Sarah album? Uh, no, I played on the version he did called Kesara. I didn't really do that much record of him, but I did a tour of Japan and the tour of Australia and a tour of Spain. I like Johnny. Okay. When he was good, he was great. When he was bad, he was horrid. But if you really want to know what happened was he called me up. I'd not long got divorced. And my ex-wife went to live in Australia. And we spoke, and she wanted to start a new life, and we should be good if we could be friends, and wouldn't it be great if I came to Australia to see her? You know, a bit of wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. Anyway. Not long after we had that conversation, Thunders called me up. Hey, Glenn, what are you doing? You want to do some playing with me? Oh, I don't know, Johnny. Where are you going? He went, Australia. I went, all right, then. And that's what I did. <laughs> yeah, it was good. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Nolan was on drums. Barry Jones um, you know, was a mate from London. Yeah. He was in a band called the London Cowboys. I did a bit of work with. He played. It, it was good. Yeah. Uh, okay. What about Ian Hunter? You're on that, uh, I'm suddenly blanking on the name of the Ian Hunter album. You're Never Alone with the Schizophrenic album, yeah. I did Are you work. on that album? Well, I, what happened was I started doing work on it, and Mick Ronson, who I'd met and worked with because he produced The Rich Kids, he called me in on the sessions, which was great. I'm playing with Ian Hunter, Mick Ronson, Clive Bunker was on drums, although Simon Kirk was supposed to do it, and me. So I was I was chuffed, but at that stage he only had about six songs. Uh-huh. And I said to Ian, I said, You're daft, you're sitting in this really expensive studio. And we're sitting around doing nothing because we've recorded the six we already recorded the six songs. And he went, Oh, I don't know, I've I've got earned a right to sit here. And I said, Well, it's your money, seat yourself. Anyway, he thought about it and he pulled the session, went home, wrote some more songs, and went back to the States and re-recorded the whole thing with the E Street Band, so I should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> oh, I had no idea you were even... That's my favorite solo album of Ian's, is yeah. the Schizophrenic album. I had yeah, no idea you were even involved. Yeah, well, that's, that's the only real... I mean, I know Ian, and I know his daughter Tracy pretty well, and uh, yeah. part of our little posse of people back in England. And Ian's written some great songs, but at that stage, what I do remember recording with him was Bastard, Wild East... Cleveland Rocks, although he's maybe going yeah. to call it Indian Rocks, standing in my light. I thought you were on the Dirty Laundry album. That's the name oh, I was well, trying to a, think Well, of. that's another thing that came later, yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't knocked out with that thing. That was a thing involved with oh. Oddie almost forgotten about that. I think the best thing about that album was the, the cover of the C D and the vinyl was a picture of a washing machine. Uh-huh. But the set you could buy was actually a totally different design, which was like a, a packet of washing up powder that you could put on top of it. <laughs> That's pretty clever, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. So, okay, I'm wondering, one thing I was noticing, other than Rich Kids, which I'm going to ask you about Rich Kids here in a minute, unlike a lot of your contemporaries, I don't feel like you ever had that synthesizer phase that so many did. I mean, Phil Linet, Linet had it. Obviously, Midyear had it. Paul Cook goes on and produces the ben- Bananarama album. But you never really embrace or have anything to do with like synthy new wave bands. Is that just a matter of timing? Was that not your style? Did it just never work no, out? I, I think it's a, a bit of an accident, really, because really, well, a we ended up with the synthesizer at the tail end of the rich kids, and it kind of put a spanner in the works in a band. Major and Rusty wanted to become and started a whole new romantic thing with Steve Strange. I wanted to be a rock and roll. And one day I turned up rehearsals and there was a synthesizer sitting there and I found out that it had come out of my publishing money. So I wasn't too happy about that. Yeah. Right. Okay. But earlier on, when I was playing with Iggy, the original Human League supported us all around Europe. You know, and they had synths and stuff. Really? And I was kind of hip to it. And I actually went back to London. I in a break, and I thought I'd try out a synthesizer, and I, I hired for the weekend an ARP Odyssey, right? And it was a, like a long bank holiday weekend, but it didn't come with an instruction manual. And I spent three days trying to get rid of the white noise sound, yeah. <laughs> and then I finally got a, like a sine wave. Yeah, I thought that's good. And then the phone rang, and I thought, oh, I'll just tweak it a bit more, and it just went back to white noise. And the next <laughs> one, there was a knock on the door, and a bloke come to collect the synthesizer. And that was the end of it. <laughs> you know, and that's when you had to put all the little the, 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 the patch cords in between. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So maybe it's just as well. I'm a rock and roller, you know. So. That's it. Yeah, you really are. Um, is so is that really? I mean, there's I've heard urban legends or whatever about what brought the end of rich kids because I'm guessing after Sex Pistols ends for you anyway, and you're like, Well, I I gotta find my next thing, and rich kids probably feels like that next thing, but it peters out almost as quickly. That couldn't have been well, easy. Yeah, it's, 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 it was going for about a year and a half, two years, you know. Oh, okay, before it started up. Some things seem to have a built-in shelf life, really. Yeah. Okay. And the other thing, I think maybe, I mean, I would say this, but I think we was a little bit ahead of our time. I think. Definitely. You know, maybe we should have waited. I, I again, I like kind of half the album. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's 12 good songs on it. I think there's six really good songs on it. I think we should have waited a bit. And I think punk could have played itself out a bit more in England. But, you know, when we did gigs in Birmingham, the fledgling Duran Duran were in the front row, and in England, and in London, it was the Spandau Ballet guys, you know. I could see that, yeah, so definitely. So I think there was a sort of a bridgehead between punk and mm-hmm. that, for what it's worth. But it's quite timely you asked me about that, because 
just before Christmas, me and Rusty went in and remastered the album. And it's really? coming out again. It's coming out again for Record Store Day. And it's actually going to be released properly in America for the first time. Because what? although it had been put out here, EMI put it out, didn't have the rights to it for America. So um, we've done a new small deal on it. So it's going to be available on vinyl as well as CD and stuff. No way. Gonna, Ghosts of Princes and Towers, that album is being re-released on vinyl? Yeah. In, for Record Store Day. For Record Store Day, whenever that is in America. But I think it's, I think it's the 22nd soon. or the 22nd. It's, yeah, it's in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's good news. Okay. I was curious about that. When you start working on your own solo albums, um, I wanted to, I, I always get the, Who's he think he is when he's at home? I always mix up the words. I always get it. Uh, I always say it wrong. But when you're working on that and you're putting it out, by the way, I love uh, Don't Put Me On. favorite songs on that album um are you thinking well this is my time you know johnny's gone out done his pil thing everybody else midge is doing his thing i'm gonna do my thing and here it is now 
Well, yes, I guess I kind of thought that. I think lyrically, you know, don't put me on. It's about, well, we maybe picked up on it, but I've done all this, that, and the other, and don't try and tell me I haven't. And, you know, I perhaps know a little bit more than you about certain things, so don't put me on. <laughs> That's where that song's coming from. But I'd started recording some stuff, met Alan McGee, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I've been recording. He said, oh, well, we'll be interested in that. And Creation put the record up. But it came out. That. Kind of, it wow. came, yeah. And it came out and it coincided with the very last minute decision to do the Filthy Luca tour. That, and mm. it kind of got swamped by that a little bit. And then people thought I was cashing in. But I'd actually recorded it the year before, even before I'd reconnected with Steve, Paul, and John. Mm. there you go you know yeah. I don't know if I've ever had the, the best business <laughs> representation you know it's been a bit of a it's been a frustration over the years but you know I write songs and I mean I put out I think this is my sixth solo album now probably um, maybe I've got a few more ducks in a row now and it'll I it'll hope so right okay. but what also is what happened with my current release um Consequences coming on cooking vinyl. They're going to reissue my other stuff as well. And the first oh, really? is going to be good to go. And the album before that, Ball Money, which is pretty good. And then we'll start thinking about the other stuff. So maybe even um, who's he think he is when he's at home will come out again. That would be great. What about Open Mind? Right. I like you there with um, with um, with uh, Sony. You kind of. Okay. Over all the creation stuff, but we'll we'll get there. Okay. But I think I think with the stuff that all the stuff that I've done, I think one thing is my singing's got better, and I'm happy to yep. using the right key, sure. which I've done before. But I think there's some pretty good songs on all of them. You know. Yeah. I think I always write an all right song, and then every once in a while I write a couple of really good ones. You know. Yes. Before. Speaking of really good ones, I love uh, "Sound of Swinging London." Again, another great album, which it's not streaming. That's another thing. I don't know if you know, Glenn, in the States anyway, Good to Go is the only album of yours that's streaming. All the others well, are I, kind I of hard to find. Funny, but, you yeah. know, I, 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 it's all a bit, that's all a bit of a double-edged sword to make is, you know, Spotify rates and stuff like that yes. are very low. And I didn't know whether it was morally right to kind of subscribe mm -hmm. to that. I deliberately haven't put them up for things like that because... I wanted to do it properly, and now yeah. maybe I'm more in a position to do it properly. So I will 
do that, but I kind of want to do it with a bit more of a splash. It's talking yeah. to you, been doing loads and loads of press. Perhaps I'm beginning to make a little bit more. You know, there's, there's you know, one of the main things in music is timing, really. Mm-hmm. You know, definitely. And, uh, things aren't always falling in the right place, but I feel that they are now, especially when I, again, when I was in New York yesterday, with doing press with consequences coming, and it coincided with Trump being arraigned. I mean, that was pretty good timing, you know. That totally. But, but you can't thing. really engineer that. It was just no. when I was free, and it was when, when he was getting arraigned. And, you know, sometimes timing is kind of happenstance, you know. I totally agree. In fact, um, speaking of timing, I feel like as someone who has witnessed and watched your career over the years, I feel like, if anything, you're in the best place now that you have been in a while. Because there's obviously the pistols, which will always be the thing that you're going to have to carry with you, for better or worse. But after that, there's years of smaller projects that stop and start or bigger projects that kind of uh, fade out quickly. And the last few years, you've become this reliant session guy in bigger name bands who love you and who you have a pedigree with. And you're releasing the probably the best solo up music you've ever done, and so it almost feels like you've found the right place for Glenn Matlock now. Finally, does that make sense? Yeah, maybe maybe you're right. It's just I wish I was forty six or thirty six, <laughs> fifty six. You know, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. How yeah. did you go back? What's your story with Blondie? I mean, you and Clem are obviously close. I'm guessing well, you I, two you know, have known each other that, forever. I think the first time I met them was when I did the Vicious White Kids gig ah. with a one-off thing. And the thing with Blondie and bands don't always do this, but, you know, if you're on tour in a different country you, and then you have a night off, what do you do? Oh, well, you go and see a band. But uh-huh. not everybody always does that. But Blondie, you used to see them out and about, you know, and they go out as a band checking things out. And I think that's the first time I met Clem. They were all out, although... In my memory, and it might be wishful thinking, first time I came to America, I was playing with Biggie Pop, and we played the Palladium on Halloween in 1979. Now, back then, in England, nobody knew what Halloween was, you know, unless you were from some kind of village of the band in Dorset, you know, yeah. or Hallow's Eve, and them that stayed be the lucky ones, you know. Uh-huh. But in America, they all went for it. We did this gig. We were supported by the Cramps. The whole audience was in um, Halloween gear. And backstage, as I remember, or as I like to remember, was Debbie Harry dressed as a witch who gave me a kiss on the cheek. So we go back a long way. Very Um, nice. Yeah, and when they they played in England, I'd always go and see them. You know, Mm -hmm. we've done loads of different projects, some good, some a bit harebrained over the years. We play Mm -hmm. well. It's a chump. Sorry. That's great. Um, one of, so I wanted to mention we have Patreon supporters, and I let them know who I'm interviewing, and if they want to submit questions, they can. And Philip Hopwood uh, sent actually a number of questions, many of which I've sort of sprinkled into our conversation. But one thing he was curious about, and I was too, are what are some of the best, like maybe the top three best working relationships that you've had? You've talked about Clem, maybe that's one of them, but maybe there's other collaborations that we don't even know about. Like what? When you what projects over the years have gotten you the most excited? Well, I I love 
working with Steve News from the Richards, who's sadly no longer with us. He was an amazing talent, but a bit frustrated with it as well. Yeah. But, you know, he could play kind of Charlie Christian jazz-style guitar or Stooges kind of stuff or what have you. He was a great talent. I enjoyed working with him, although he was a bit like the younger brother and over and we drove each other mad. But there you go. Love yeah. working with El Slick. I did a yeah. bit of playing. I did a bit of playing with the faces. Um, what did uh, is Ronnie Wood, Kenny Jones, and Ian McGlagan. I was very good friends with Matt. And also, when he put me up for the thing, he said, "Glenn, you're in." He said, "You sure you're up for this?" I said, "Matt, I learned to play with these songs, and I know him backwards." And he went, "Great." I said, "Yeah, it's just forwards I struggle with," and he laughed. <laughs> and that was it. And I remember doing a gig, and we was playing. We only did about maybe 10 or 12 shows over about 18 months with the faces. But uh-huh. we, did the, we did headline the Fuji Festival in Japan. But we was doing a show, and I was sort of over by him between numbers. I saw about that. I made a bit of a kick up, cock up in the, the bridge there. He said, oh, Glenn, don't worry about it. You should have heard what I played in the second verse. It was atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that. You don't always have to be the best player. You have to be good enough, but, right. but you have to be the right guy. You know, that's right. He would. They right. probably could have had Jeff Beck in the Stones or Eric Clapton or something like that. But Ronnie's the right guy. You know, that's it. That's it. I was going to ask you about that Faces reunion. I think was Mick Hucknall was the lead singer for that, Mick right? Mick Hucknall was the lead singer. You know, everybody wanted Rod to do it. I think Mick Hucknall would have long. Love to go and see it with Rod doing it as well. Yeah. For whatever reason, Rod didn't do it. But to me, the faces were always a great rock band with a great soul singer, which I well with Rod. And Mick Hutton was a great soul singer, and it was yes, still he a is. great rock band with a great soul singer. Yeah. Do you, um, isn't Mick one of the people who was at one of those early Sex Pistol shows like that Gary Kemp talks about, stuff like that, that well, changed they, everything? Big they, 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 this. I he used, to, used to go to art school, which is now kind of secret and i get invited as an alumna of st martin school of art every now and then mm-hmm. to kind of events you know like talks and things after and i went to one about factory records record design and there was kevin cummins paul morley and the other guy actually did the sleeves i forget his name now mm-hmm. doing a talk about it and i watched it and all that and then they said any other questions and this is when I was doing the faces thing, and I was just sitting in the audience. Nobody knew I was there. And then somebody shouted out from the back. He said, well, you're all from Manchester. Who was there at the very first Sex Pistols gig? And they had a little conflagration on stage talking about, and the only one they could really agree on who was definitely there was Mick Hucknall because he went to the opening of an envelope. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I was just really? about to play, play with Mick then, so it was kind of funny, you know. Mick's still, no I like him. Just like, you know. I do too. Yeah, he's. I mean, that voice. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's not. It's different than what you do. But he, what he does is gorgeous. When yeah. you know that voice is unmistakable. You know, I remember doing shows in his dressing room before you go on. He's sort. Of, he's got Bessie Smith blaring out. You know. Ooh. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you to. Uh, I watched that pistol. Uh, series that came out last year or something. What was your thought on that? It got kind not, of mixed reviews. Not keen. Not really? Keen. Why? Disappointed. Well, my portrayal of my leaving is just totally really wide of the mark. And if I'd known it was going to go like that, 
I wouldn't have signed off on the rights of it. And I actually told um, told Danny Ball what I thought of him. <laughs> See you next Tuesday. Right? Yeah, yeah, got it. I know I was it. disappointed because I thought we got all that straight at the beginning. So I feel a bit yeah. shocked about that. But it's kind of been and gone a bit now. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's already come and gone. I enjoyed it for what it was on an entertainment basis. But it was interesting that it was, first of all, from my understanding, Chrissy Hind wasn't as seminal or big a focus of a figure at that time. Maybe she was. I don't know. And then it was all really just told from Steve's perspective. And, uh, well, that and was I fine. Was, I mean, yeah. I thought it was important when I heard because Steve, it was Steve's band. Steve started the band. You know, I, I thought he should be allowed to tell his story, but he didn't. But, but I mean, Chris, I know Chrissy pretty well from way back then. She was definitely around. Yeah. And she's a neighbor of mine. I was chatting to her about it. And she said, well, I don't know what this is all about. And he shagged him once. So. <laughs> well, it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, I want, there's a lot of mythology around that sex shop. I think you work there. And what I what I was wondering is when Malcolm puts together the Sex Pistols, are you all aspiring? No, hang on, hang on, hang on. He never put together the Sex Pistols. Good point. We formed <laughs> under the also, and met through his shop, but he didn't put us together. Steve okay. and Paul were the band anyway. I worked at the shop, and I met, met Steve and Paul through Malcolm, and then through that we met John, but he didn't put us together. Good we point. wanted to do something, and we was the right people hanging out at the right place at the right time. With the right people like Malcolm and Vivian and Bernard Rhodes, who went on to manage the Clash, was around there then, and Jamie Reed, and all the people a bit older than us. Who we can't, you know, it's a very symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody would have heard of the Sex Pistols if it wasn't for Malcolm. But equally, I don't think anybody would have heard, from, heard of Malcolm if it wasn't for the Sex Pistols. No. Good point. Perfect point. Yes, thank you for clarifying. I should have. Uh... I should have said it that way. What I wondered is when you were the sex shop employee, are you an aspiring musician? And yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it goes that far back. Yeah. I mean, I started them when I was still at school. Really? And then I was applying to go to art college and I asked Vivian Westwood. I don't know why I didn't ask her, but I needed a reference. And I asked Malcolm, this is before I met Stephen Paul. I said, to ask Vivian to see if Malcolm would give me a reference. And she said, what for us? She said, well, I'm, I'm thinking of applying to go to art college. And she said, well, that's good, but I don't know that you want to ask Malcolm for a reference for art college. And I said, why not? She said, well, he's been thrown out of everyone in London. <laughs> and, and, and that's when I became more interested in Malcolm, and Malcolm became more interested in me, you know. Yeah. And I wanted to go to art college because I've read every band that I liked had gone to art college. So I went to try and form a band. There to try and meet some people to form a band, but I kind of met them outside of that and then introduced them to the art school scene. That's where we did our first gigs. But you know, it's a long, long, long story. But yes, it was, it was fun, interesting times, you know. Yeah, with what was going on in London at the time, sort of politically and sociologically. And it's kind of gone back to that a little bit now, still. So the world's gone full circle, but I think when people are put upon that's when good art comes through that's a very good point yes very good point i talked to don letts recently and his he started in a shop too 
You know what I mean? Yeah, I, which I, is, I knew John back then when he was a soul boy and he used to work yes. in Acme Attractions, which became boy. Yep. All these people that you know about from punk, we all knew each other. And, yeah. you know, right from the get-go. I mean, I remember when Chrissy Hine was in London and we was hanging out and she wasn't really supposed to be there. I remember standing outside when she went to a real sex shop that was sold kinky underwear and a bit more called Anne, Anne Summers. I stood outside while she went in to see if she could get a job there off the cards. You know, we got we all go back a long way. Yes, you know? yes. When you see when you see everybody that you know socially breaking off and starting bands, the Pretenders, Adam and the Ants, whoever else, are you? Um, I don't know. Can you take a step back and appreciate their music for what it is? Do you feel like you know them personally? Is it odd watching Adam Ant, who you knew from the store, become a sex symbol and an Indian and a pirate and all this kind of stuff? Um, no, it's, it's not odd. I think good for him. Okay. Sometimes yeah. you think, well, actually, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. <laughs> True. You know, and it was all coming from the same place, you know, under some yeah. Malcolm Thorpeuses and stuff. You know, I think what happened with him, I think he spoke to Malcolm and Bernie and they had his band that were a bit punky and he wasn't quite knowing where he was going. And I think either Malcolm or Bernie said, well, don't you be a pirate? Mm -hmm. As little as that. Yeah. But he took that idea and ran with it. You know, in yeah. life, sometimes you just need one little idea and then everything changes. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before I let you go, does Bowie mean anything to you? Did you have any oh, interactions with him? I thought Bowie was a governor. Yeah, I met him a couple of times through working with Iggy. He yeah. made a good mates. He come, in fact, he came to one rehearsal with Iggy after lunch, and we was running through some songs, and he got up and sang with us. It was kind of cool. Wow. And I met him a few times in the years after that. In fact, I was telling the people I did serious radio. In the early 80s, after I was finished playing with Biggie and I was over in New York doing something, I bumped into Tina Weymouth and Chris. Mm -hmm. And they invited me to go and see them play at Radio City Musical. And I mentioned that because to go to Sirius Radio, it's right next door to Radio City Musical. It's a fantastic mm -hmm. building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I went to see them. I went in the back way and all that. And I bumped into Coco Schwab, who yeah. was Bowie's assistant for many years and I met through Iggy and uh, and the band had just started and she said oh hi Glenn she said David's over there go and say hi and David Bowie was just behind the curtain at the edge of the stage watching the band so he could see the band but nobody could see him mm -hmm. and I think he was there A because he likes talking heads but B because Adrian Bewley who'd been playing with Bowie was playing yes. second guitar with a talking head mm -hmm. anyway she says go and say hi and I said I was a bit shy and I said well I'll go and get a drink which I did do and I'll go and say hello in a minute. And five minutes later, she comes back. She's like, go and say hello. And I went, well, yeah, yeah. She went and got Bowie. He grabbed me by the hand. And we sat and watched the whole talking headset all the way what? through. And he, and he knew every word to every song. What? And he's singing in his best, best David Bowie voice in my ear. Oh. And then he splits right after the show. But he set me up because everybody backstage in New York wouldn't know the fuck I was. When what? I was like kind of flavor of the month. And I'm sure he did it deliberately. It was great. Wow. wow. He's my favorite, too. Oh, my gosh. What a story. Him going, psycho killer. Oh, my gosh. That is surreal. 
That is huh. surreal. You know what I'm realizing, Glenn? I would normally ask, I ask a lot of my guests if they ever, you know, met a hero or, you know, had an interaction, but you're a hero. You're the hero that most of people I would talk to would say they were excited to meet you. I'm wondering if going back all this way, if there was a band that you thought were going to be something, or, or maybe we don't know enough about, give us uh, recommend some music to us from any era, just something that you thought. Well, I thought I've no, always mate, liked no, these guys. No, you know, I'm fans of things that came just before punk, and there was some oh. good stuff around there. And you know, places I mentioned, um, yeah, I mean, came big through different routes. But there was a really good band called The Sensational Alex Harvey Band. Sure, yes. From, from Glasgow, I was really big on them. I've met them briefly a couple of times. Um, uh, they kind of, I'm not, I'm, I'm a bit talked out now, but maybe another time I'll tell you how about okay. how because Malcolm McLaren thought they were tax inspectors <laughs> when I was serving in the shop once, and I then took Malcolm McLaren and Bernard Rose to the Hammersmith Odeon to see the sensational Alex Harvey band because they'd had a big hit with Delilah by then, yeah. purely to prove to Malcolm that they weren't tax collectors. And he realised how many people were there and how much it got to get in. That was the first time he took the idea of managing the Sex Pistols seriously. Really? Oh, we'd, better, we'd better have a meeting tomorrow, he said. Oh. <laughs> wow. Speaking of Bernard Rhodes, did you ever feel, were you, I mean, you and the Clash were pistols, and Clash weren't in direct competition. You, they sort of came a little bit later, or whatever. What, what were your thoughts on the Clash? Did you like them? Were you into what they were doing too? I like my neighbor mates. Um, okay, I'm big mates for Mick Jones. Yeah, um, we both support the same football, lovely oh. football. I liked them. I wanted to help give them a leg up. In fact, when Mick was getting the Clash together, even before it was the Clash. Sex preferred rehearsal place. He came down. Steve Jones played drums. I played bass while he checked out Chrissy Hine as a potential singer. I think yeah. I've heard this story before. Yeah, I right. forgot all about that. It's in my book. You know, it wasn't going right. to be But Mick was one of the guys trying to get something together. You know, we yeah. all kind of helped each other sure. out a bit. But I thought the clash became really good, you know, and I think. Wasn't so. I thought some of their early stuff was a little bit naive, but in the right spirit. But when they did, you know, London Calling and Should I Stay, Should I Go, and um, yeah, Rock the Casbah, I think yeah. that's kind of real. You know, they got there. Yeah, I think the Pistons. I think we came out. Everything. You know, all Pistons running. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But the Agreed. And they kind and, but, of reflect this, especially in the States. But yeah, I kind of, most people, you know, we all know each other. We all give each other a leg up. There's not many yeah. things I don't like. And if I don't like it too much, I just, <laughs> do you know what? I went to see, um, in fact, I supported Ronnie Wood. He was doing a thing with Splash mm -hmm. quite a long while ago now. at Shepard's Busy Empire. And I played and backstage there was all stuff going on. Good natured stuff, but then Ronnie came up and he was a bit sozzled, right? And there was a guy who used to write for the Evening Standard, and I went out the back of the auditorium to watch Ronnie. And um, I bumped into this journalist called Pete Clark, who wrote for the London's Evening Standard. And I said, You're doing a review? He said, Well, I was going to, but I, I like Ronnie and I won't. 
And but I think that's quite a good spirit, you know. Yeah, it is. You like you like people, and um, if they're doing something great, good. And if not, keep them. You know. Interesting. Yeah. All right, there you have it. The great Glenn Matlock. Consequences coming comes out on the twenty eighth. It's a fantastic album. When we had done this interview uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I don't, I'd only heard a few of the songs, but they've sent it to me since then, and it's fantastic. And I wanted to close it out with another track off that album. This is Magic Carpet Ride. So check it out. It speaks to our times and our frustrations and our hopes and dreams better than just about anything these days. Um, now, next week, I'm not exactly sure what's going to come, to be honest. Um, e- uh, Yan is kind of hoping to take a little bit of a break. So we're trying to line up uh, someone to sort of backfill for three to four weeks. He might be doing one next week, um, but uh, I'm not exactly sure. I've talked to Ken Mills. I'll reach out to Aaron Syrett. If anyone out there wants to take a crack at producing an episode like Yan does for us, once, twice, maybe three times, we would love it. And I would love to hear from you. So if you're interested, let me know and we'll figure out how that how this is done. You, me, and Yan can hop on a call. Yan just needs a bit of a break. I don't blame him. Um, so I don't know what's coming up next week, but I have a lot of good ones in the can. Uh, I do know there should be a book club coming out this weekend. Yan has promised that, so that should be coming this weekend. I cannot wait to show this one to you because it's a returning author and he's fantastic. Huge thanks, as always, to our man, Jan the Man Makiewicz. Uh, you guys can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, sort of, at thehustlepod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.